I'm James Gould, and you're listening to The Recess Course. All right, so in this episode of The Recess Course, we're going to be talking about opioids. Opioids are unfortunately something that we see far too often. It's a pandemic of sorts, not only in Canada, but around the world. And managing these and resuscitating these patients is a very important part of emergency medicine and and being a good resuscitation physician. Today on the show, we have local toxicologist, Caitlin Wolf. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Caitlin. My pleasure. So Caitlin is a fellowship-trained medical toxicologist. She completed her training in London, England at Guy's and St. Thomas NSH Hospital Trust. She's one of two tox-trained uh, physicians east of Montreal and is currently the associate medical director at the Atlantic Canadian Poison Centre. So it's an absolute pleasure to have her here. She's a wealth of knowledge. And Caitlin, we're going to get into a case and just kind of run through how you might manage it. How's that sound? Sounds great. Awesome. So this may sound familiar. It's an adult male. He's of unknown age. He arrives to the emergency department by EMS. He's found unresponsive behind a local shelter. He's a GCS of three. He's currently being bagged by EMS. And on their arrival, he had minimal respiratory effort. He's got a heart rate of 70, blood pressure of 100 on 60, and SATs of 70% on room air. They placed an oral airway, and after some bag valve mask, his SATs are now 98%, but requires ongoing assisted ventilations. He arrives to you, his heart rate is 90, blood pressure of 105 on 65, with a normal temperature. There's no signs of trauma to his head, um, no signs of trauma elsewhere on his body, and your tox exam reveals pinpoint pupils, and uh, his reflexes in terms of any signs of other toxidromes are unremarkable, and his skin is uh, warm and well-perfused without any signs of sort of dryness or increased perspiration. So, I mean, that's not an uncommon situation, I think, in our world in emergency medicine as well as in talk. So um, why don't you tell us, Caitlin, just hearing that story, what are your immediate thoughts? Yeah, I guess when I, you know, got the stem from you and, and sort of listening to that um, being read out there, this this obviously is a story that's pointing us in the direction of a, a kind of pure opioid toxidrome. So very consistent with the decrease in his respiratory rate and and those pinpoint pupils. And I think my first thought is, you know, probably this is going to be opioid and, and often it's opioid alone um, or that's kind of the predominant feature of the toxidrome. I think the first that's the first thing I think. And the second thing that I think is that actually kind of the immediate emergency has already been dealt with by our, you know, pre-hospital providers. So they've put in an oral airway, they've started bagging and had a really good response to that. And so we're already in, in this position as the receiving physician where we think we know what's going on and we have a moment to think because his SATs are fine now. And although we're assisting those respirations and that's not the end goal, um, you can just kind of take a deep breath and, and think before you feel like you have to act in this scenario because you know, they've, he's had such a good response to this minimal airway intervention that, that we can just take, kind of take a breather. And now is the time I would encourage you to carefully examine this gentleman, because we're going to talk about a little bit later in this podcast, you know, what we might do next in terms of, terms of antidotes and medication. But while he is, you know, fully sedated from whatever has happened, it's a good idea to complete a full physical exam of the patient, both for toxic reasons and for other causes. You already talked about trauma a little bit. I think my take home point would be that um, it's so important to be vigilant for occult trauma and also vigilant for occult medical illness. So the assumption is always, you know, did someone take too much 
recreationally of a drug and overdose. And that might be the case, or they might have taken the same amount that they normally do, but they're unwell. And so that's hit them harder than it normally would. So it's just really important to have a, a very broad differential, not only of what they took from a toxic point of view, but also of why they're sicker than they usually are if they're a usual user. So I, that my immediate thoughts are, I'm first thinking this is probably going to be an opioid toxidrome. I'm hoping it's opioid alone. And I have a minute to pause and just have a good look over this gentleman and a good think about things before I have to do anything next. Um, what about, tell me a little bit more about physical exam of these patients. So this one's pretty clear. The patient has 10 point pupils, you know, decreased DCS, decreased respiratory rate. Do they all present like that? What if, um, you know, what if they have normal pupils? Do you ever see any opioid overdoses that have relatively normal pupils or are they all pinpoint? I mean, typically speaking, certainly, you know, exam-based questioning and whatever, you're, you are looking for the pinpoint pupils, but some opioids cause more constriction than others. And some things that are opioid adjacent, so sort of the tramadol and tramacet kind of preparations, um, certainly can cause otherwise a fairly significant opioid overdose type toxidrome, but they don't always cause as much meiosis. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously, if someone's taken more than one thing, um, you know, either recreationally or, or an overdose, it can be hard to tell which is predominating. So people can be quite um, sleepy with a mixed benzo and opioid overdose, for example, with more normal pupils. So I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't not proceed, uh, you know, down the pathway of thinking it's opioid if the pupils aren't completely pinpoint, but it is unusual in most cases that they, if they aren't a little bit constricted. Yeah, interesting. Um, would it change your management if you saw someone that had sort of non-pinpoint pupils? Is the decreased respiratory rate, decreased GCS enough for you to, to trial naloxone, like a fairly um, benign medication? Yes, I think, and we can talk about it a bit more later. It's a very benign medication for most people used in the in the sort of correct doses or the correct kind of approach. And so, certainly, that decreased respiratory rate. There are very few things that cause bradypnea that people take on a regular basis. So, if you're seeing decreased respiratory rate with any of the rest of the constellation, and, and you think you need to try something, absolutely reach for naloxone. Mm. So, I guess that brings us to the treatment. So, in terms of naloxone. How much would you give? Because I know that there's a lot of discussion. If you look at what the dosing, um, you know, based on some resources would be, it's uh, a little higher than what we might be giving to someone who is a chronic user of opioids. Um, can you touch on that? Yeah, so I think as with all things, you know, the setting and the context and the purpose matters when you're deciding what dose of naloxone to give. So in this case, we're, you know, safely in our, you know, recess bay of a, of a hospital. We have some time and we have some supplies. We actually don't need and, and don't want this man to wake up right away. And that's a very different setting from, say, an EMS provider potentially working alone. Or it's important to remember in the context of this opioid pandemic, it's very different from the context of bystanders. So other users or family members who are finding people and thinking about administering naloxone. So I think it's just really important to be totally clear about, about what who we're talking about and, and what we mean. So in theory, what you want is the lowest effective dose to achieve an adequate response. And for most people in the hospital, the adequate response is just a ventilatory response. So you're just looking to increase his respiratory rate and effort enough that you aren't bagging this gentleman anymore. You don't necessarily want him to wake up. And so, you know, if you have all the time in the world, as we've already said, um, to stay with him, you could give very, very small doses 
the injectable form of naloxone comes as a 0.4 milligrams per mil. So you could start, you know, draw that up into a syringe or even dilute it. So it's easier to, to administer, but obviously making sure you know what, what you've done in terms of that dilution, but it would be reasonable to give say a quarter or a half of that first mil. So 0.1 or 0.2 milligrams and see what you get. You really should get some response to that um, in many people. Um, and that will kind of help you know if you need to titrate up in, in bigger or smaller quantities. So I would start relatively low. And in the person who is a, a chronic user, we don't want to, as you've already alluded to, completely reverse them. And we certainly don't want to do that too quickly. Um, if this is, say, a pediatric case and it's somebody's child who's gotten into, you know, some some you know medications that were prescribed to a parent postoperatively, that child's not dependent on them and also we're less worried about medical or other occult kind of injury. You might try to reverse them fully and give a much bigger dose. And, um, you know, if this is a bystander situation or in places where um, pre-hospital medicine does a kind of catch and release type program, which is not common in, in, in this part of the world, but it is in some others, they're using the IM injections. So probably IM auto injector or an IM dose. Um, and the one that's provided to the public in most places is, is a milligram. So that's a full milligram that's given IM in the auto injectors usually. Okay. Um... I guess the other question that I have about that is, um, how do you know when you've given enough or when do you know that it's not working? So, you know, starting low, giving those little bits, um, let's say there's no response and you give a little more. How do you titrate that? How do you increase? By how much do you increase? And then how do I know, when do I say enough's enough, this isn't working? Yeah, there are different... Um styles, I guess I would say, of, of dosing and, and kind of different answers to that endpoint. I would say that when naloxone is given IV, let's say, because that's mostly how we'll be giving it, it should be working within moments to minutes. So really, you, sh you should know pretty much right away whether or not that dose has worked. And so I'd be redosing every two or two to three minutes um, in somebody, you know, where I was um, trying to push it a little bit and see where I got. If it's this gentleman and, you know, he's not, doesn't seem to be unwell and we're just at the phase in our examination where we're doing this as a trial to, to kind of try to wake him up and, and get that rest break back on his own, I would probably be, uh, you know, either administering the same dose if it, if it had a little bit of an effect or perhaps doubling it a couple of times. So if you started with 0.1, nothing happened, you know, give 0.2. If nothing happens, give 0.4, that, that kind of strategy. If someone comes in, you know, in extremis, and we've not been able to get that airway or you're in a shop where, where you know, nobody is there to help you or, again, it's a pre-hospital setting, you know, you, you would start a lot higher and go a lot harder, I guess, is the answer. And so um, in, in the kind of cardiac arrest situation or the pericardiac arrest where you can't get that respiratory piece back and you need to fix things quickly, then most people talk about starting at more like two milligrams at a time, doubling that dose every two to three minutes. And the ceiling, there's really no ceiling. Um, but if you get up to something like 10 milligrams, you know, you're, you probably have given this an adequate trial. So in almost all case series, six milligrams total dose is enough to fully reverse people, even if they've taken quite a big dose of, of quite a powerful opioid. It, you know, maybe not fully, fully reverse to consciousness, but definitely know you've gotten an effect from it. So it, again, if this is a cardiac arrest situation and someone's critically unwell, I wouldn't stop at six just because I've told you that in this podcast. I'd probably go up to 10 or 12 before I said, okay, you know, we're, we're getting nowhere. But you really should be seeing some flicker of response at much lower doses in most people. Gotcha. 
Is that cumulative dose, Caitlin? So if we're doing, saying, up to 12 milligrams, is that you would continue to double it until you're giving a dose of 12 milligrams? Yeah, it's it's um, there's a bit of nuance there. That's Thank you for pointing that out. So um, a cumulative dose of 12 milligrams in most people should reverse it, but that's cumulative given right away in the course of one kind of uh, dosing strategy like I'm describing. So I don't I don't want people to say, oh, they got 12 min, you know, or they got, um, let's say, six milligrams over the course of three hours because mm-hmm. I gave them these tiny little aliquots going, uh, you know, back and forth, giving these tiny little aliquots. I mean, 10 or 12 milligrams administered over the course of a few minutes as you're doing this kind of escalating dosing strategy, um, you know, you, you really should be seeing a pretty significant response. Yeah, I imagine there's a bit of a danger in diagnostic momentum for people that, you know, come in like this, uh, you know, there's almost a sticker of opioid overdose written on this on this gentleman's head. And um, I could see people sort of falling into the trap of just continuing to give naloxone and and there is always the chance that uh, there's an alternative diagnosis and it's nice to know and have a sort of a framework for you know when should in most everyone uh, there be should there be a response Um, because I could see people falling into the trap of just continuing to give it not seeing a response continuing to give it not seeing a response and then you know missing uh, treating the the true underlying cause so good to have a framework for that. Yeah, and I think that raises a good, you know, point that, you know, it's important for you to set out in your mind again in the context, like, am I doing a trial of a very big dose of naloxone to see as a last ditch effort if if that's what I'm chasing? Or am I doing, you know, a little bit just to try to get this guy back on track? In this case, you know, if I were at the bedside, I'd be giving more like 0.1 or 0.2 to start and kind of working up slowly from there. Um, in the case of somebody where where you're just trying to take it completely off the table as contributing, then you'd be pushing really rapidly up to that sort of more like 10 milligrams. But just be prepared that you're going to throw someone who's a chronic user into significant withdrawal, um, which is a headache for you potentially to deal with in the emergency department, a disposition issue. And, you know, you, you're not going to be able to get somebody through the CT scanner for their, um, you know, whatever injury you're suspecting after you've put them into complete withdrawal because they're just not going to be collaborative with that. And there are some case reports of, you know, pretty significant pulmonary edema occurring after complete and rapid reversal in some people. So it's not something I'm rec- recommending for the average case, but just as you say, kind of good to have a framework for the for the worst case scenario. Yeah, that's really good to know. So um, in terms of these patients, so let's say you do reverse this patient. Now they're awake, they're breathing. Uh, how long do you actually have to observe them in the emergency department? Let's say we've resuscitated them. They look well. Uh, do I need to keep them there for four hours, six hours? How long? That's a great question, James. And like everything in this talk, there's quite a bit of variability um, in practice pattern in, in different places and between providers. So in places where they've struggled with this uh, opioid epidemic in really significant numbers for a really long time, there's been a push to quantify exactly the safest strategy at the shortest time of observation. And so one place where that's been a problem, of, as you know, is in Vancouver where St. Paul's Hospital developed in, I think, around 2008, a rule that's actually called the one-hour rule or the hour rule. And what that essentially says is that it, if at the end of the hour after your dose of naloxone, you have completely normal vitals and completely normal GCS, you're essentially okay to go. That's not how most people practice in places where you have a bit more time or a bit more space or where it's not as clearly a single agent that's involved. So it's not a pure opioid um, kind of use pattern in in your population. 
But it's something to keep in mind that the dosing of naloxone when we give these small doses or, or single doses that reverse people adequately, that is probably most effective in the body for about 40 minutes. And then it starts to wear off almost completely by the time you get to that hour mark. So if you've reached the end of the hour after you gave a single dose that completely reversed someone, they, they probably really are at very low risk to have any kind of relapse to, to a, any significant degree to the state where they came in. But I would definitely consider keeping someone longer in, in many circumstances. And the first one that comes to mind is if they took a long acting opioid. So if you know that what that patient is prescribed is methadone and they've said that's what they took today and they took extra or whatever the case may be, I would just be concerned that that methadone is going to last a lot longer than your naloxone and, and be wanting to hold them a couple more half-lives after my naloxone has worn off just to be sure they don't dip back down or they don't continue to absorb it later in their gut. I'd also be concerned about the person who needed more than one dose of naloxone, anyone who's going to go to a scenario where they're completely unsupervised, so there's no one else who's going to be able to you know, lick, look in or look after them. And then, of course, the last scenario is anyone who took this as part of an intentional overdose. So it's really important in these users at some point to just kind of question them while they're there to make sure that this wasn't something where you know, it was actually an intentional act um, of self-harm uh, before they're kind of ready to go and, and talking about discharge after naloxone. So, you know, most people would be kept probably a couple of hours to up to four hours, depending on the scenario. But if someone, you know, got a single dose and decides to leave at 90 minutes, they're, they're probably pretty safe in the community. And the statistics from other places where, where they discharge early do bear that out. Nice, nice. The world of opioids seems to be changing all the time with these newer, more powerful opioids, you know, these carfentanyls, sufentanyls of the world. Is there anything else that we should be aware of about these uh, type opioids um, and anything else on the horizon for opioids that we should be on the lookout for? I think the main thing with these like very synthetic opioids that are extremely powerful is that um, you may need to be giving much bigger doses overall to totally reverse someone. So they should still have some response to the lower doses we talked about earlier, but to completely reverse someone who's taken a walloping dose of something, you know, IV themselves, it, you could need quite substantial dosing. So we used to say the ceiling was more like six to eight for most people. And, and I've already quoted you sort of 10 to 12 is kind of the, the max that most cases might require in, in an extreme scenario. So that is really because of this era of new opioids that are circulating. Um, in this population here, you know, recording in the year 2022, we're not seeing as much of that. We're still seeing things that are quite sensitive to our naloxone. Um, there's always going to be new things coming down the pipeline, but for for the most part, um, the new synthetic opioids behave very similarly to the old ones, just stronger, essentially. So be prepared for for bigger dosing. One more thing I wanted to talk about, and um, uh, I think it's probably sort of a controversial topic, and I don't know what the right answer is, but I'd appreciate your opinion. So, you know, some of these patients, not many of them, but some of them end up being intubated. And after they're intubated, there's always a discussion about whether or not there's any utility in using naloxone in that patient population. You know, obviously, we're not using it to support their respirations. We're, we're doing that with the ventilator. But is there any role for naloxone there? Uh, if someone's intubated, would, would, you, would you have them on a naloxone infusion to try to change or, or alter the time period by which they might be on, on the ventilator? Or is it, um, you know, is it a pointless sort of uh, thing that we're doing there? 
I think, again, you know, the, the context and the purpose matters. So if they've been intubated because um, simply because they had profound respiratory arrest and you otherwise are ready for them to come off that ventilator, then you'd be giving naloxone, you know, to try to start to bring up their own respiratory drive. I think that's perfectly appropriate. But if they've been intubated because actually they've got endocarditis and they're quite unwell in addition to whatever is going on, there's really no need to give it. Um, at that point. It's not therapeutic to put someone into withdrawal while they're being ventilated, um, and it will really make your sedation much more difficult. Um, so I would say, you know, if the goal here is wake up to extubate and we think that all is going on is, you know, that they've taken some kind of overdose or been exposed to too much drug, then absolutely you can give it to them while they're still ventilated to try to bring up their respiratory drive and, and match what you're delivering. Um, but if this is someone who needs to be intubated or needs further advanced testing and things like that, I, I don't think I'd be giving them naloxone um, because it's just going to make things more difficult for you and for them. Uh, great answer. Yeah. All right. I think that covers everything on opioids. Is there anything that we missed? No, I don't think so. Awesome. Well, okay. So thank you so much, Caitlin, for being on the show. And we'll see you next time. Sounds great. Bye, James. Opioid overdose happens way too often, and as resuscitationists, we need to know how to manage this really well. So to summarize some of the points that Caitlin made, remember first, you need to categorize these people into those that we know are opioid naive, and that may be a pediatric patient, or it may be a patient that you absolutely know is not using opioids chronically um, or recreationally. And in those people, we are probably safe to give a much larger dose of naloxone in the hopes to completely reverse and wake them up. So starting at around a four milligram bolus dose would be a reasonable um, starting point. Remember that those patients that are chronic users, or if we don't know whether or not that patient uses opioids chronically, then we must assume that that patient may be put into withdrawal if we give them too much naloxone, or in other words, if we wake them up. For these patients, it is okay to go slow. We're talking about smaller boluses of naloxone, somewhere around 0.04 milligrams, titrating up, rebolusing every two minutes. Now remember, when you are titrating that medication, you're giving repeated doses every one to two minutes to see the effect. There is no ceiling dose of naloxone, but at approximately 10 to 12 milligrams, you really should, in any overdose, see some effect. What's our goal? We're trying to have the patient breathe. You're looking for a respiratory rate somewhere between 8 and 10. What about that patient who's on the verge of dying, the peri-arrest patient? It'd be reasonable, even in a chronic opioid user, to start somewhere between 2 and 4 milligrams. One thing we didn't talk about in the podcast with Caitlin is naloxone infusions. Now, when you do get adequate response in a very sick patient, what you want to do is start an infusion of naloxone. Remember, this medication only lasts approximately 20 minutes. And so in those patients that require repeated bolus dosing, the better thing to do is to put them on an infusion. And the infusion would be approximately two-thirds of the effective bolus dose. What about the patients that you give a bolus dose, they wake up and they're looking to go home? When is it safe to send them home? Well, Caitlin explained that probably after about one hour to one and a half hours in a patient who is vitally stable and ambulatory would be a reasonable patient to allow to leave. 
Now, that's all context dependent. Depends on the opioids that they took, the route by which we administered naloxone, and how well the patient is at baseline. Finally, I think it's important to note that even in the absence of naloxone, patients with opioid overdose can be managed effectively with good resuscitation skills. With an oral airway and good technique for bag valve mask, EMS providers and emergency physicians, resuscitationists can care for these patients. Naloxone may not be ready immediately when the patient arrives to the emergency department, and the first thing that you need to think about is how do I provide adequate respirations to this patient so that they can oxygenate and ventilate, and that is all about doing good BVM. If you liked this podcast, head on over to therecesscourse.com where you'll find lots of recess-related content, all free open access. While you're there, you can check out details about the recess course a two-day, resuscitation-focused, cadaver and sim-based course. Details, dates, and availability are posted on the website. I'm James Gould, and thanks for listening to The Recess Course.